Brad. Yes. I fulfilled a lifelong dream this weekend. What's that? Well, when I was a little boy, I saw a movie. You may have heard of it. It's it's an indie. It was a small production by 20th Century Fox called Star Wars. And it was about a young farm boy who grew up to save uh, the rebellion uh, and and defeat a fascist empire. He fought Uh, a war in the stars? He he flew an X-Wing starfighter Mm. and he used it to blow up the bad men. Oh, wow. And I have done that now. And a, a lifelong dream has been fulfilled. I put on a virtual reality headset. Oh, it's wow. a new bleeding edge technology. And uh, I got in the cockpit of a starfighter and I shot up a bunch of TIE fighters and then got killed over and over and over again <laughs> in multiplayer online. You sat in the X-Wing. I, I have been in the X-Wing. You I have, inside the X-Wing. I have held the flight stick. I have a throttle. I have done it all. Oh, did you I've go got, all the way? You I got, spent a lot of time binding controls. You got oh, fully, like, fully kitted out on that thing? Look, that might have been. The, I don't have pedals. I think uh, pedals might have to have to be an add-on at some point in the future. If I stick a, with this is, thing, is there a hotas? That's the question. Uh, I have. I have hot assed all the way down. <laughs> okay, that's commitment. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll give it to you. That's uh, well. I figured I look, would just do the Xbox controller on this one. I I had the hot ass from when I briefly thought I was going to get deeply into um, Elite Dangerous. Okay. And then I played enough Elite Dangerous to realize I wasn't going to get into Elite Dangerous, but I was past the return window at that point. So, yeah, you know, um, it turns out the hot ass used to be a lot cheaper than it is in a post Microsoft Flight Sim 2020 and right. X uh, Star Wars Squadrons world. Yeah, hang so. on to that thing. It might be a lifeline for you at some point. <laughs> you could trade yeah. it. You could trade it for 10 pounds of beans in our coming yeah. future. Yeah. Hey, um, uh, you got you got some tomato seeds. You got a little bit of uh, <laughs> soy. I, uh, yeah, I trade you a hot ass for that. So you can use it as a tea bar over here. Yeah, exactly. uh, is there a term for like that's kind of like actually the main reason I would want to use a controller in a VR headset is it's one unified control surface that you never take your hands off of. So there's no like blind fumbling mm-hmm. to find a thing like even it's not really a problem. Really? Like even a keyboard and mouse been. for me in, in VR, I kind of, you kind of just for a second, if you move your hands, you have to feel around to get them back to, you know, the home row position or in, in the case of like, how many pieces is your setup? A stick, a, a hotas, or just two? A stick and a throttle. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I guess your hands are kind of planted there, but anytime you have like things you have to move well, your hands back and forth between, there's a perception issue. So there are buttons. I feel like I brought the hot ass in when we did that Rebel Galaxy Outlaw thing last year. Um, when, when you had me come in to do a quick look for you with that, were you in VR for that thing? No, 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 there's no VR. They don't have 3d cockpits. So there's no VR, but I brought the hot ass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to say it's X 52. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it was, uh, it worked it, like, so there's buttons, there's like toggle buttons below the stick that you have to kind of hit occasionally to manage power distribution and stuff like that. But it's, it's been fine. Okay. Um, I'm not having to take, like, I'm, I'm not, I'm using the right hat switch the left hat switch the throttle hat switch for targeting stuff the main thumb hat switch is for like power distribution so like one way is shields one way is weapons one way is energy is uh engines and the other one is rebalance it and then like shield distribution all that stuff is spread around spread along the other buttons and it's working pretty well so you're so good at flying an x-wing you could do it blind uh i mean i don't know if i could do it blind i have my targeting computer yeah, on dude, the, the, you heard the man turn off the targeting computer Welcome 
to Brad and Will Made a Tech Pod. I'm Will. Hi, Brad. Hello. Hi. Hey, Brad. What's up? Uh, anything happening this week? Anything exciting oh, no, going on in the just world? Been hanging out. You know, it's been like a quiet week around here, really. Yeah, just, nothing, just no news. No, no news nothing, is good news. That's what we always say. Happening in any category of my life at all. No. Just steady as she goes. Smooth oh, sailing. It's yeah. a good Rack and Taurus song. Um, I found out that the president had the coronavirus uh, while Wait, I was streaming. What? Wait, have you not been paying attention to the news at all? Of course. This is a spoiler. I do. Dude, I've done nothing but look at the news yeah, over the last say. 24 hours. I found out while I was streaming, and I'm pretty sure I laughed because I thought it was nice. a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I thought somebody was goofing on me. Yeah. All of life is a joke right now. It's, it's, but but a, you know a, what? A dark, a sick, dark joke. You know what is a light fun a fluffy airy dystopia dystopia yeah Yeah, exactly it's something that's full of laughter and joy and mirth yeah what's that Uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy yeah so about a month ago we promised that we hit a thousand backers on the old tech pod patreon which you can find at patreon.com slash tech pod and back for as little as two dollars a month to gain access to the fabulous tech pod discord or five dollars a month to get a patron exclusive content which we posted earlier this week where we talked about projects that we have in process and a bunch of other stuff before the before the weird thing happened. <laughs> um, we promised that we would read Hitch- Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is my like millionth time and your first time, yeah. which is why this is exciting to me. I'm very excited to hear how you found here 50 years ish after it was written, 45 years after it was written, how you found Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams seminal 1979 work. Well, it's scarcely more than 45 minutes since I finished it. It's still pretty fresh on my mind. Okay. Um, Coming in hot. What a peculiar book this is. That seems right. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I just, I I wasn't quite, I mean, well, there are two, there are two ways to put this. I was not prepared for the way that book is structured. Mm-hmm. And the you general, mean the complete lack of a the, traditional sure. three act structure, like the yes. tone, the tone of it, the weird, like like reality bending kind of metaphysical aspect of it, really threw me for a loop. On the other hand, so much of that, so much of the details have been absorbed into my brain through osmosis over the years that like a lot of stuff about it. Should we talk freely about it, or can we just assume everybody listening to this has, I, has I think- read it? I feel like 40 years is outside the spoilers. Okay. So, okay. Well, let's <laughs> do the, full, the thing. Let's I, do the, the warning. Okay. Because the example I was about to give is the, practically the end of the book. So well, I just well, want to make on. sure. If you haven't read Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, absorb the radio play, watch the TV series, read the uh, dramatized audio version, or watch the movie featuring uh, Sam Rockwell and Zoe Deschanel and most deaf. I wish to talk about the movie later. We'll so. If you haven't absorbed any of that and you're concerned about spoilers for this 40 year old property, you probably already know every fucking thing about. Yeah. Maybe don't listen to this episode until you finish reading the book. Yes. You've been warned. We'll be here. Kind of like I did. Like I felt like as I read through it, I knew about half of it already. Yeah. The 42 is the example. I was obviously the classic example I was about to give of the great answer. Like the the microsecond that anything hinting at a great question and answer started being talked about. I like uh-huh. 42 popped into my head immediately. Like that was yeah. just um, trying to think of some other examples. Like so long and thanks for all the fish was something yeah. I was very well acquainted with. Um, Marvin, the paranoid Android. Uh, Mar- Marvin is a, an eternal character. As far as I'm going to people rocks kind of is too. Is that so that was actually like maybe my number one question coming into this was how you say his first name. Zaphod. Zaphod. Is that, Zaphod. Can, is that canonical? 
canonical. Yes, is, that is, is really from the radio Z-Fod? play. Okay. Yes. Okay. Well, that's about as authoritative a source as you well, can get. Well, so so it's a technically preceded the book, right? Yeah, I was going to say for for your the reason this book is weird is that it is an adaptation of a serialized radio drama yeah. that was a radio comedy that was run on BBC Radio in the seventies, right, and early eighties, and and as a result, the each chapter doesn't quite, but almost in. in what is it he says? He is, is he says it, it doesn't quite, but it uh, doesn't quite. It resembles, but doesn't quite entirely not resemble tea or something like that. It's like <laughs> sure, like oh, oh uh, you mean oh you mean like a nice brownie in motion generator? Uh, yeah, yes. Hold on, Did we get to the brownie in motion generator like in a, this book, like a couple. Yeah, that's totally in there. That's that's how oh, they that, that's how they arrived at the infinite improbability drive. Oh, that's right. The Brownian motion simulator comes up in a later book as well. I see. I see. So, so it's uh, hard. It's hard for me to talk about specific plot beats and stuff in this book because I've listened to the radio dramas a lot over the years while I was driving back and forth places and commuting, and they're not quite entirely dissimilar, but they are like the beats are the same. But then there's different. There's a whole bit in the first radio play about shoes that they just don't get into at all here, and I don't think towels make an appearance in the radio radio play. Really? Yeah, towels are very important in this book. I thought, well, I thought towels after the initial, after the preamble about towels, I thought that they would figure heavily into the actual plot, but they kind of didn't so well, much. See, this is this is why your Western expectation of of uh, Chekhov, Chekhov's gun does not apply in this one, because sometimes the payoff for a one-off joke about towels will take two or three books to get to That's in, fair. in the world of Hitchhiker's Guide. I would believe that. I'm trying to find, so I've got, uh, I've got here the omnibus tome. Yes, all, the all big five boy. books in front of me. Uh, in the introduction, uh, cheekily titled A Guide to the Guide, some un- mm-hmm. unhel- some unhelpful remarks from the author. Um, he kind of he breaks down the history of this thing pretty exhaustively. And I'm trying to find. I know he listed it in here and I can't find the list. He he explains very explicitly which episodes of the radio play formed the basis of the novel. Oh, yeah. It's like one, um, three, five, seven and most of 13 something or something like, like that. that. Yeah. I, f- I found the list here of the second book, which is Restaurant at the End of the Universe, right? Mm-hmm. That book is episodes 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 5, and 6 in that order. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I, don't, I don't see the list of episodes of the first one. But yeah, like not exactly your typical three-act structure here. Like it really, I don't, I don't know what, what I found more discombobulating. The fact like that the, it, the weird jumps and the, the fact that there's yeah. very little continuity between chapters I, sometimes right. like I, I don't know if I don't know what was more uh, more baffling. Um, the fact that there was careening from one episode to the next or or the bizarrely deus ex machina esque way that they got there. So so one of the things that's important to know, and I feel like this was covered extensively in in Neil Gaiman's first book, ironically, which was a biography of Douglas Adams and a, the story of the making of Hitchhiker's Guide. It's called Don't Panic. It's very if you like Hitchhiker's Guide, it's worth reading. It's really funny to read proto Neil Gaiman prose in a nonfiction setting now. Uh, but but literally, there were times on the radio drama where they were recording the first part of an episode, and he was writing the last pages of the episode while the recordings were happening. So that was the other thought that occurred to me as I, especially as I got to the end of the book, which Mm -hmm. kind of, would you say, I like the book. I don't want to sound like I'm pooping on it or anything here. It's, it's, I I enjoyed it quite a bit. It's just like, it's just weird. It's really, it's just not, it's, it's very unconventional. So I, I, I mean, it, it just stops. He, that, he's that's, that's literally, what was, that's what I was going to ask you was, is it fair? Do you think it's fair to say the book kind of doesn't have an ending? 
Oh, no, the book absolutely doesn't have an <laughs> okay. ending. He, okay. <laughs> he, he even said in interviews, it may even be in the preamble in the introduction that like he blew through three deadlines and the publisher yes. said, hey, where are you? Yes. And then he write, replied here and they're like, OK, we'll just send that yes, over that, and we'll that, publish that's, it. That, that's exactly what I was going to ask was he says yeah. in the intro, they literally said like, well, we're just going to send a car over. Just give us what you have. Like that last line in the book, the the. Um, oh, let's see. It's it's where he says. It's like a Zaphod Beeblebrox line, and it seems like something that was totally just written <laughs> by like the the editor of the book, right? Because it doesn't even seem like a Zaphod Beeblebrox line. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's okay, refers- baby, hold tight, said Zaphod. We'll take in a quick bite at the restaurant at the end of the universe, right? Which is literally the title of the next book, right. which yes. is you know, yeah. Uh, um, it, it's it's like it is it is. In terms of like, there's so much in here that structurally shouldn't work. Like there's, there's lines, uh, like an expression of deep worry and concern failed to cross either of Zaphod's faces. Like that is absolutely not the right way to write that sentence. If you're writing grammatically correct English, but it works. Sure. It gets the point across. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, this is a, this is another one of my favorites. The, when you're cruising down the road in the fast lane, you lazily sail past a few hard driving cars and you're feeling pretty pleased with yourself <laughs> and then accidentally change down from fourth to first instead of third, thus making your engine leap out of your hood in a rather ugly mess. That's the first punctuation in that sentence. Yes. And then it finishes. It tends to throw you off your stride in much the same way that this remark through Ford Prefect office. Right. He could have just it, said Ford Prefect was mildly confused right. by this. <laughs> but, a like, but it's a very evocative way to describe exactly the feeling that he had. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's a, it's beautiful. And yeah. there's like there's like 10 of these. There's another one I highlighted on this page that that is, um, you know, the when Ford meets Zaphod for the first time and he's like, oh, I said we've met. And Ford is like, what the fuck are you talking about, monkey? And, and he, he says, Ford rounded on Arthur with an angry flash in his eyes. Now he felt he was back on home ground. He suddenly began to resent having lumbered himself with this ignorant primitive who knew as much about the affairs of the galaxy as an Ilford-based gnat knew about life in Peking. Right? It's it's just, <laughs> right. It, it, the prose is delightful a lot of, a lot and of, unwieldy and yes, bad. A lot of flourishes in there, for sure. Yeah. Um, I feel like by the end of like the first chapter... I started to appreciate why this book would be such a like formative experience or a formative work for a young nerd. It, uh, it was, it was, well, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Like specifically it was the, it was the moment for me where he's laying in the mud trying to prevent the destruction of his house. And he basically, uh-huh. he basically out logics the functionary who was there to preside over the destruction of his house into laying in the mud for him <laughs> and stopping yep. the destruction of his own house while he goes and has a beer. Yeah. You know, like yeah, it's, it's, pure, it's purely through some kind of like logical trap that he lays for this guy. You know, it's like, all right, this I realized like immediately like oh, this book is playing fast and loose with like the rules of reality and like metaphysics and logic in a way that like a kid who is a little bit too smart for his own grade would really get into. Does well, that so make sense? it's funny you say that because uh, one of my dad's my parents friends, second wife, who is also one of my parents friends. Uh, but she was much younger than them, handed me this book when I was probably somewhere between 10 and 12. So I was like in fifth or sixth grade, probably. And she handed me this. She said, you like Star Wars, right? And I was like, yeah. She's like, you like funny stuff, right? And I was like, yeah. She handed me this big book that had a giant, like smiley green guy with thumbs up that said, don't panic on the cover. And she's like, read this. You really like it. And I read it and I really liked it. And I read it probably 10 more times over the next few years. But it was it was such a 
compared to the other stuff I'd been exposed to, other the other books that I'd been exposed to, it was so profoundly weird, both in in its kind of British colloquialisms and and you know, in addition to talking about foreign, like in addition to talking about outer space stuff that I actually like, I I, I know which star is Betelgeuse, right? Like I can look at it and find it in the sky. I don't know where the hell Ilford is, right? I, that could have been a made up place when he was talking about being on a field outside Innsbruck, Austria in the, in the preamble. I, I, that, that could have been a made up place for all I knew in Northeast Tennessee in 1986 or whatever year it was. So uh, it was being exposed to something that the prose was both so flourishing and weird and unsettling in some places even really shaped my search for stuff. And it, and it actually like, I went to the library and asked the librarian, Hey, I really read, I read this hitchhiker's guide book. And she's like, well, you're probably too young for that. And I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, it worked out. She said, I was like, do you have anything else that's like that? And then she pointed to me, Mark Twain. And I bounced off of that immediately. And was like, <laughs> yeah, maybe not. It's from a different era. I get, I get, yeah. where they, I get where they maybe saw some overlap there. Um, I found it to be pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty perceptive around certain like sociological and economic topics and stuff too, about like, like the, the wealth hoarding of, uh, God, what is the, um, Magrathea, Magrathea, Magrathians. Yes. Yeah. Like the, yes. The collapse of the galactic empire due to the wealth hoarding of the Magrathians. Um, the Seems kind a little of prescient. the kind of the cynical nature of like self-serving politicians who just sort of prioritize like aesthetics over substance and policy, you know? You see, Safe on like, People Rocks is a like, is a parable and totally. no warning for our time. Yes, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> except kind of a, like a benign, like a goofball one. You know, like I mean, I'm sure doing, that I'm sure that the president thinks he's a benign goofball too. Yeah, um, um, yeah. I that that stuff was very like a lot of like one of the interesting things reading this now is how much of the stuff that I missed and or just completely glossed over without understanding at all. Um. Uh, you know, now versus then versus now uh, reality TV, like in a lot of ways, the stuff that they're talking about is is a straight uh, precursor to like like when Deep Thought gives the the philosophers tells them, hey, yeah, you got seven million dollars, seven million years to make bank while I think about this. Just just yell at each other enough and people will keep watching. Oh, God, that was that's for something written in the 70s, like late yeah, 70s, early yeah. 80s. Holy cow. It was before Jerry Springer. It was before Donahue, really. Sure. Or, I mean, you know, or even, you know, before <laughs> like the combative style of like 24 7 cable political yeah. programming, right? There's no real housewives like, that he was watching in 1980 that he was like, oh, yeah, this is good. People are yelling at each other. People love that shit. Right. Uh, um, or, or, you know, that was like not that long after the, when was the famous, uh, the Gore Vidal, uh, Bill Buckley. Like, oh, the de- debate thing, that, that debate. Yeah. The thing that kind of was the like genesis of Fox News and stuff like that. Like, that's kind of goes that a little bit. Right. Like, just, yeah, you know, a couple, wow. couple of philosophers getting rich by just yelling at each other and disagreeing endlessly on television. <sighs> All you have to do is yell enough and you, anybody can be famous. Yeah. Thanks for the Kardashians, Douglas Adams. Um, no, the, the, so in terms of the structure in this book, though, one of the things that struck me is there is a lot of uh, you know, Vince Gilligan has said that their writing process for uh, Breaking Bad often was to like 
write themselves into a corner and then look look at like like look around at the set and see what kind of tools were available to the characters that could get them out of this this trouble they found themselves huh. in. It's, it's how like it's how they ended up when they had captured a guy and they didn't know how to capture a guy because they were new to, to, to the criming. They used a U-lock and like you locked the dude around the neck to the <laughs> to the pole in a basement. And and that was because they knew that he'd have a U-lock because there was a bicycle in the garage that was in an earlier shot in one of the earlier scenes. Right. And and there's a lot of that here, too. Like, like the difference is that where the Breaking Bad writing staff would would like, you know, use something from reality. Douglas Adams would just lop off the whole inconvenient corner and <laughs> totally. move on to the next thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, he really gives himself a lot of just like very convenient sort of logical exits for a lot of situations. Right. Well, but it's I mean, it's a it's a it's an interesting situation because like this, the technology, the way he presents tech, space technology and it, it, this happens more in the later books. But even in this one, there's a broad range of what people you know, there's like hyperdimensional, super intelligent mice that have infinite technology. And then there's like, you know, the rich white people equivalent in the current galaxy, like Zaphod Beaverbox that have this super duper ship. And then there's just like the normal chuds that we don't see a lot of. But like, th- like the cops have low end gear, and when the when Marvin <laughs> over depresses their ship, the computer stops working. Those guys just croak because you know their 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 low budget low budget hardware stops working. Sure, um, it, it it's like I, I mean, you could say a lot of the outs are Deus Ex Machinas, but. I mean, it's a world of it's it's the Arthur Clarke thing about, you know, sufficiently advanced technology yeah, is indistinguishable sure. from magic. Yeah. So, you know, is it plot armor? Or is it magic I like technology? The way, the way that they arrived at the infinite improbability drive, I think, is like the best example of that. Because the the logical progression, oh, yeah. logical progression was basically like, what was it they said? Like what? Like the, the guy who invented it basically just said, like, well, if they say it's a virtual impossibility, then that means it's a, actually a finite improbability probability yeah i just need to calculate exactly what those odds are and then feed them into this machine and like flip the switch and it'll just come right out and sure enough it did the the description of the parties that they use the technology for that then the the thing the thing about um making the hostesses undergarments leap three feet to the left or something yes is is just the the kind of delightful science uh, uh, oversimplification slash, you know, it's like it's the equivalent of using liquid uh, um, carbon dioxide or liquid nitrogen to make your drink bubble at a chemistry party in, sure. you know, in college, and that was, yeah. Um, it it's I I the thing the thing that I love about this book is that every time you start to think you have an understanding of what's going on, uh, you know, unlike every other science fiction thing where there's some primitive earthling thrust into a larger galactic world, you know, that Arthur Clarke and, and, and Isaac, Isaac Asimov and, and all those folks were writing at prior to this, the, like this book, these books are aware that this whole universe is going to seem absurd. And, and the idea of an infinite universe where there's some life forms that look like big pens and some <laughs> yes. life forms that are like hyper intelligent shades of the color blue yes. is going to be inherently absurd to anyone who's, who as recently as 50,000 years ago was, you know, hanging out in trees and, and wasn't, you know, wasn't using any kind of tool. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I just, 
it's, it's I find it to be utterly delightful. Even it's it, the the other thing that struck me is how little it's dated. Yeah. Yeah, like so I, I was I was making notes of some of the depictions of technology in there, and I was like, there's a couple spots, you know, where it does feel very 70s, but like it envisions the digital watches. Yeah, there's a like lot the, about the, digital yes, watches. The, the digital watch stuff stands out <laughs> in that context for sure. But uh I mean the ones that seem pretty prescient to me were like uh there's like the flying camera drones for the TV news around uh-huh. when like when they the unveiling ceremony for the for the magic spaceship. Gold. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's straight up cameras mounted to drones. Um in the uh in the bridge of the heart of gold they talk about how like switches and knobs for traditional control surfaces and spaceships had evolved into touchscreens and then those yep. had those had just evolved into gesture based kind of motion controls and, you know, <laughs> and, like, and also like he nailed the problem with connect like if right? douglas adams had yes. lived long enough to see connect like the 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 problem with this is that you move your head the wrong totally. way and all of a sudden the spaceship veers off to the <laughs> left the, the, the line really was good. Well, the line was something about like once you find a station that you like with that interface you just have to sit infuriatingly <laughs> still um uh. But then so we, we started talking about this before the episode and then you started to correct me. And so I want to hear your answer here because um, you mentioned that you felt like the guide itself or the physical, the physical depiction of the guide in the book is kind of like a smartphone. Because I is. think I, the, the guide is depicted as something that like if you were comparing it to a piece of hardware that people will probably be familiar with who are listening, probably like a Blackberry. So it's like a screen with yeah. a whole boatload of buttons on yes, the bottom. Yes, that's how it's described. So like the, the point I started to make before we started recording was. He came up with touchscreen interfaces and he came up with a pocket computer with like functionally infinite information, mm-hmm. but he didn't think to marry those two and produce the actual modern smartphone. But then you started to say that you had a reason for that. Well, I, I mean, I think I think he was looking I think he felt like the buttons were more practical, mm-hmm. right? I think he felt like the touchscreen was somewhere on that spectrum between the 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 hardware buttons and the having to sit infuriating still to avoid changing the channel by accident and and like the interesting thing about the guide to me is that it was basically it's basically just like an internet connected wikipedia terminal which somebody made i feel like that was a product that somebody released in like 2005 or 2008 um but but yeah the the buttons like the whole point of the guide is in his description of it. And it, this may be from a further book or from the radio play or something, but it's supposed to be non-threatening. It's supposed to be friendly. It's supposed to make you feel better about where you are. And it's remember, it's for hitchhikers. So it's for the pores. It's not fair. This isn't this isn't some cutting edge touchscreen technology. No, no, this, this is a like democratizing gateway to the galaxy's information. Yeah. Five Altarian dollars a day. Yes. Um. Uh, it's it's amazing it was also amazing to me kind of how much of this uh how how much of this book particularly the book impacted the like late 90s early 2000s internet monoculture yes you know, think geek sold a ringer a blue ringer t-shirt in like the fallout colors with the number 42 on it Okay. For years, huh. I own one. Sure. It became Gina's favorite nightgown. And I bought that <laughs> before we moved out here because like it came from Tennessee with us. Sure. Right. Um, where does the green guy come from? Like it's on the cover of my omnibus edition, like the little dot kind of dude with the tongue and the arms. Who knows? Really? Never shows up. Right. I was like, I was, I was racking my brain after I finished the book trying to figure out where that cover art comes from. And I don't so, think it does. I, this is an informed guess, but my guess is that because it's not on the, it wasn't on the UK publisher original versions. Yeah, of the book. I, I Googled some other alternate cover arts from different editions and it's not on every edition of the book by any means. No, it, it just says don't panic on the UK ones. And 
My guess, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that somebody in the UK, in the US publisher's art department said, hey, you know, books sell better if they have a face on them. (laughs) Ironically, it's only like half a face because there's no nose or eyes. It's just a mouth. (laughs) Well, but but that guy was on the version I got in like 1985. Really? Yeah, he's been on all of the US. He was on the audiobooks. He was on the um, all of that stuff. Interesting. I I feel like maybe he was supposed to be on the cover of the guide saying don't panic. Okay, it's unclear to me. I would believe that. Sure. I think of him as the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy blob. Yeah, I can see it. Um, Little dog. I don't know if it was. I don't know. I don't remember if that. It's been a long time since I read the Neil Gaiman book, uh, but I, I don't know if they covered that at all in there. Uh, yeah, but yeah, like by the same token that I was going through and recognizing a bunch of the traits of this book that have permeated popular culture. I was also looking or I was also finding all these references that have been appropriated by other things like <laughs> oh, yeah like the second that the character of trillion was introduced i was like really is that where that came from because i used that mm-hmm. i am client for her however long it existed late was, 90s motto culture yeah totally i was an avid trillion user and i never had any idea where that in fact wasn't no maybe i'm mixing i was gonna say wasn't the icon of trillion like a green dot or am i mixing that up with something else uh, be, you could make the icon of trillion a green dot for your online status if you wanted, but I don't remember. Okay, maybe I'm mixing that. Yeah, that might be a little bit too I much. I feel over. like it was like a blobby logo-y too looking much, thing. But. Too much overlap, but I have, to, I have to assume that's where they got the name of that I am client from. Um, oh, 100%. As soon as I, as soon as I saw Paranoid Android, I, you know, I obviously thought of the Radiohead song. The Babblefish. Remember, oh, Google ba- Translate yes. was originally called the Babblefish. Yes. So, okay, thank you. I was, that was it was killing me. I was trying to make a list of these before we started here, and I knew there were at least a couple. I was forgetting. Babblefish was a huge one. Oh, there's a there's a, there. We no matter if if all people do in the this week's episode part of the TechPod Discord is talk about the things that are the same. That, that like this cause to be named something De- details of this book that have leaked yeah, out into be other pages and pages product naming. Of, I would love to yeah. hear more that I've, that I I'm glad you thought of Babelfish. Uh, I noticed, uh, I mean, I know, I know the concept of a Googleplex exists outside of Google, the company, it's but it's just a math yeah, thing. Right, right. Right. But I, but I do wonder if the inclusion of that term in this book maybe helped inform them. I mean, clearly Sergey and Larry or somebody there early on were fans, right? Yes, right. Um, um it was, it was, there were even there were even like little just kind of like manners of speech in here that I that I recognize from people I used to talk to on IRC back in the late 90s. Oh yeah. Like just like little kind of verbal ticks almost, like ways of ways of truncating words and stuff like that that I was like, "Huh, that explains." For example, uh like the one the one that really comes to mind is the way that people shorten because, the word because. Oh, the COZ? Uh, COS is the one in, in the book that yeah. I read. Because like the, at least in America, I think the the most common way on the internet, maybe not so much these days, but definitely back in the kind of late 90s, the most common way to truncate that word was C-U-Z, cuz, or at least in oh, my experience. No. Really? Oh, I think that might be a regional one. Okay, maybe so. Anyway, like I, really? I never saw, I saw I a C-A-U-S-E with an apostrophe uh, at the yeah, front. Yeah, that one, well, that's... So that too, hardly saves you little, any characters. It's too formal for me, thank you. Yeah, if you yeah. use the apostrophe, that's only you're saving yourself one character stroke. I always stroke. thought if you see C-U-Z, but, people are talking about their cousin. Well, that was another use, use for okay. it, sure, but I definitely saw... Anyway, like, I, I knew somebody who... It's funny, all the overlap here. The, I knew somebody who who spelled it C-O-S on IRC. They, okay. were, they were also a big Radiohead fan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, I huh. think I think probably a Tiger's Guide fan. Like, I don't know, whatever. It's just a bunch of little details from my life that I picked out of this book and thought like, oh, that's where that maybe is exactly where that came from. Well, the weird thing about this to me is that I I don't know. Like, I, I, 
I don't fully understand. Like, I know that a lot of times because Britain is a little bit smaller and because at the time there was more of a monoculture, you know, there was radio, there was TV, but there weren't 50 million channels and Netflix and all that stuff. Like, I I don't know how much of a phenomenon. I know that this was presented in Don't Panic as a phenomena, but I don't know what a radio drama phenomena meant in 1980. Like even in the UK, I don't know if that meant that everybody had listened to this oh, or if like sure. a double digit percentage of the country had listened to this or if, you know, a million people had listened to this. Uh, and and I wonder I wonder how much like I, it this felt a little bit like a countercultury kind of niche thing in the US right up until the point that I got on the Internet. And, and then you were like, oh, wait, everybody I know has read this. I was like, yeah, all these people have been they they all know that. Yeah, there's a there's a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mud. There's an info. I didn't know there was an Infocom game. I should get that. I should oh, play I, that. And have you have you played that? I've never played it. Really? No. We should, we should check that out. Maybe sometime. I've been saving it. Yeah, I, I would. We, yeah. I mean, you know, he, go, he goes into that in the introduction that he basically makes it sound like every different manifestation of this work has been yeah. pretty different from every other one. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> have you listened to the radio play? Yes, multiple times. Is it, it's very it, good. Is is it that different? Uh, he, he, the thing that he said about it being like chapters one, three, five, seven, and most of fourteen is absolutely correct. Yes. Okay. I, it was kind of hard to tell in the introduction if he was just being self-deprecating. No, but but uh, because, yes, because, but because, also because it was true. I think the phrasing is something like like uh, the novel bore very little resemblance to the radio play, and then the computer game bore very little resemblance to the novel. So, for example, in the radio play. When the cops are shooting at the computer bank that they're on, the computer bank blows up and they all think that they're dead, but they're not. They're just at the restaurant. And that happens at ex- almost exactly the same, like as they're leaving Magrathia. But like, like they, they're, there's a, there's a whole lot of confusion about what's going on. And it is the biggest plot jump, I think, in the whole series. Huh. Um, so they just, they just skip right over Marvin. Convincing the cop spaceship to commit suicide. Oh, they get to Which, it. Okay. Uh, I don't actually know if they get to the cop Marvin convincing this. Yeah, you're right. That was maybe one of the darker moments in that book. I thought. Like, like there's the, so Marvin, I think was originally supposed to be a throwaway character who people ended up liking on the radio show. So he got to hang around and Marvin ends up hanging around a lot in the, in the oh, books. Interesting. Uh, like, like a whole Marvin is very good. Marvin's they, one of my favorites. Do, do, well, I keep saying they, but it's obviously it's just Douglas Adams. Does he run with some of the dangling threads at the end of this book? Like what happened with Zafod? Also, I am not to cut myself off. I'm not used to saying Zafod yet. In my oh. head, in my head, it was Zafod. Oh no, Zafod. Or, or I, I even wondered. I didn't think this, but I even wondered if somebody might pronounce it like Zapod or something like that. But Zafod. Yes, something like no. that. But Zafod. Zaphod um, Beeblebrox, inventor yeah, like, of the pangalactic gargle blaster. Like yes, like the, the mystery of whatever he did to his own brain. Whatever's uh, whatever is locked in his brain, like do they revisit the, stuff like that? There's five more books, Brad. Yeah. You'll it'll work. You'll get there. Okay. Yeah. Are they worth it? It's yeah. Uh, so we talked about Dune a couple of weeks ago, and and my advice on Dune is that the first book is a transformative work of science fiction written one of the best pieces of science fiction written in the 20, 20th century uh, and each sub- subsequent book is worse than the one that precedes right. it it sounds like if you if you prize your experience with that first book you Don't, should you should safeguard it by not reading anymore <laughs> maybe the second and third books if you really really feel the need to get more but just walk away but that, that's uh, not the case here these books even the books so like the fifth and the sixth books the sixth book was published posthumously the fifth book is fine like it's it but like even the ones that are bad have delightful bits in them. Like the, the fifth book, 
has this has this amazing bit. There's two things in it that I really love. I loved it enough that I bookmarked them years ago. Um, one of them is this, and I'll read it. Uh, when it's about technology and failing, uh, and he talks about this thing that he invented called the Great Ventilation and Telephone Riots of SRDT 3454, that all mechanical, electrical, or quantum mechanical, or hydraulic, or even wind steam or piston-driven devices are now required to have a certain legend emblazoned on them somewhere. It doesn't matter how small the object is, the designers of the object have got to find a way of squeezing the legend in somewhere because it is their attention that is being drawn to it rather than necessarily that of the users. The legend is this. The major difference between a thing that might go wrong and a thing that cannot possibly go wrong is that when you a thing that cannot possibly go wrong goes wrong, <laughs> it usually turns out to be impossible to get at or repair. That is a very, is a very was, that's a very Douglas Adams yes. passage. Uh, there's also a fantastic bit about sandwiches in that fifth book that is worth reading. Uh, but like, look. When you the the first, second, and third books were written all kind of in the same time frame, they tell a really specific story. The fourth book was added on later. They each of them wraps up loose ends. Some of the some of the loose ends are wrapped up in the bad Star Wars way, where like you find out that the guy in the background at the at the cantina on Tatooine was a bounty hunter or like some wanted criminal or some bullshit. Uh, some of them are written wrapped up in the Star Trek good way, where like. You know, Khan shows up in the second movie and you're like, oh, oh OK, that's OK. Uh, so, you know, he pays your money and he takes your chances, I guess. Sure. Was he do you know if he was still actively working on this stuff? I mean, I guess if the last book was posthumous, I guess he was if he was still like actively trying to extend the series when he passed away or was he trying to wrap things up? Hmm. I I would. I don't. I, I I never had the chance to meet him, which was a bummer because like I was just getting to the point that I might have been invited to some game <laughs> thing that he worked on when he died. Um, I I feel like like the the maybe apocryphal stories about him having problems actually being a productive writer are such that I would say he continued working on it in spite of his best efforts. Huh? Like he, he so he wrote these six five and a half books six books he wrote um two books in the dirk gently's holistic detective agency series that are also very good and like absurdist but on earth with a little tinge of mysticism like fa- fa- like they're fantastical books set in the real world uh is the is the okay. right way to describe them but not like not like swords and elves and shit like that it's just like math is weird and and like when you do weird math weird things happen sure um and then he wrote a nonfiction book called Last Chance to See because he was a really committed environmentalist and worked with the World Wildlife Federation and a bunch of uh, places like that and went basically went to Africa to see a bunch of endangered animals and kind of use his platform to to spread the word and and let people know that there's stuff worth saving. Yeah, um, I, that's interesting because the reason I ask is that in the the in the foreword in this big tome that I've got uh, by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. He implies pretty strongly that Douglas Adams never set out to be a writer and like, in fact, maybe didn't even enjoy being one. I think that's right. I mean, like if you look at who the the author proxy in his books are, like Dirk, Dirk Gently is not the author proxy. Ford Prefect and Zafid Beeplebox aren't. He's Arthur Dent. Yeah. Right. He's a guy that's always in a little bit it's over his fish, head. Fish out of water. Yeah. And and I feel like that's absolutely little, the case. A little down on his luck. A little. Well, I yeah. mean. Yeah, kind of a little bit of a, a schmuck. Guy, a guy but, who's like, like a, little, a little swept up in events outside of his control. Yeah, but but like he, he's trying to do right. 
Yeah. Right. That like that's sure. the defining characteristic of Arthur Dent is that he's he he often tries to do the right thing and it ends up tragically n- not working out for him. Sure. I, you know, I should revise what I just said. I don't think it, I don't think it's that he didn't want to be a writer. I don't think he it's, it's that he didn't want to be a novelist necessarily. Like, I think I the, mean, the forward kind of painted him as like he was he was looking to follow in the steps of like Monty Python and people like yeah, that. I mean, like, he, he wrote he, Doctor he, Who episodes, right? right. right. It, was, it was like he seemed like he wanted to be more of a comedy and TV writer type and sort of I, fell into writing books. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I like if Yeah. Like, it's funny. If I ever met Neil Gaiman, I think the thing I would talk to him about most is Douglas Adams rather yeah. than <laughs> it's like, it's fair. Yeah. It's, yeah, you um, know what? I mean, that is like, whatever, not to get off on a tangent here, but like, and I don't meet a ton of famous people all the time, but like, I think that's a good strategy for meeting your heroes or meeting famous people is to talk to them about something other than themselves. I like for most people, I think that is a very having, good strategy. Having, yeah. having, uh, having an, uh, a pre- uh, like a pre-made or a ready conversation topic if that is something they're interested in rather than their own work is uh, it's a good strategy. Exactly. Um, so I, I don't, I won't spoil things for you for the future, but yes, there are almost every single thread in this book is picked up at some point. Okay. You, the you, the next book picks up exactly where this left off. Yeah. Right. You, you literally come back to the heart of gold as they're going to get lunch. Yeah. So, you know, it's really I think it's really just a result of the way things played out that I am even interested in, like what his life goals and stuff were, because if he was still with us, like I wouldn't spend two seconds podcast. Right. I I wouldn't spend two seconds thinking about like, oh, what was he like and what were his, you know, what were his ambitions and stuff? Because he'd still be around and it just wouldn't be that interesting. But because it like his untimely demise does give the his his the arc of his career a little bit of a like a tragic undertone. Well, it's it's it's. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because like he's, we all know the people, we all know people like him. Like he was a guy who was into computers, right? He was into, he was, even when he didn't have anything really, he could do with a Mac. He he had a Mac or an Apple II and was, was like always noodling with that and was sending files back and forth. And like, we've, we know, um, what's, there's a Neil Gaiman, I think Terry Pratchett collaboration book where uh, they made an Amazon series out of a few years ago, but it's uh, basically they were sending a floppy disk back and forth in the mail. So like Neil would write one chapter and he would save it to the floppy disk and then they'd ma- he'd mail the floppy disk to Terry Pratchett and Terry would read what he wrote and then wrote, write the next chapter. And they were alternating POVs throughout this book. And and that was the kind of stuff like, like he was Douglas Adams was really excited about how technology was going to grow. Um, and, and, at the same time, like I look at how my views about technology in general have been shaped by reading this book when I, at a formative age. And, you know, it's always. It's I don't want to say it's cynical because it's not, but it's not it's it's like it's like carefully metered uh, uh, excitement always because like. There's always there's always two sides of of every technological coin, whether it's, you know, splitting the atom for the first time or, you know, the everybody carrying a location aware, always on microphone spying device in our pockets all the time. <laughs> you, like you have to think about how all of this stuff is going to be used. And he gets he spends a lot more time thinking about the like. Like it turns out that the heart of gold is an ecological disaster for reasons that they won't get into for like five, oh, bu- five inter- books. Interesting. OK. Um, and, and there's all sorts of interesting stuff that comes along with his, his kind of take on, on tech in general. Yeah. That's just, it's kind of sad looking back that 
somebody with that kind of perspective wasn't around for longer. Yeah. It's, I mean, I remember it was, it was, he died when I was working at maximum PC. Yeah, and I was going to say, out, I think it was 2001. Was it? So it was, right? it was early two thousands for sure. Uh, he was 43 or 42 or something. 40, 44. He was born on the day they invented D- They discovered DNA announced the discovery of DNA. Uh, 49. 49. Yeah, yeah. Was that, was that like huge news? I just, I wasn't really aware of him at the time. So I didn't, it didn't uh, catch my eye. I probably found out about it on slash dot or something like that. So it was, yeah. it was uh, substantial. Yeah. You know, it was, it was enough that we, enough people at the office were fans that like people were bummed and talking about it at the water cooler and stuff like that. Sure. Um, yeah. How's the movie? Have you seen the movie? I, I want to I think that, I think it might be in the introduction that he mentions in there something about there's like a, an idea for a movie or like talk of there being a movie, but like it, it has just been in some kind of development hell forever. Yeah. So it so. finally came out in like 2013 or 2014, I think. Yeah. Um, it's the movie's fine. Yeah. Like the movie it's, it's, I mean, when you take something that's as unabashedly weird as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is and try to transmogrify that into a movie, yeah. it's, it's a challenge. I was thinking, that I think the whole time I was reading the book, I was just like this, this book, the mental image that you paint of, of the events of this book is, is so fuzzy to begin with because the, the book itself has such a like tenuous grasp on the rules of reality that like having to depict that in some tangible form on screen, a would be very hard for the person having yeah. to do it. B, I don't think I would want to put such like rigid, rigid imagery to the kind of open-ended like imagination that goes along with this book. Does that make sense? Yeah, no. Like what does sleek, like a running shoe look like when you're talking about a <laughs> sure. spaceship, right? Sure. Like sure. you can't make it look like a shoe, right? but like that is, there's a very specific kind of curve that you think about with running shoes or, and, or, and like, or like, like, like every time the heart of gold, uh, like bends reality or remakes reality in some way, like having to, uh, having to make the depiction of that like finite and rigid on screen, mm-hmm. as opposed to just the like endless weirdness that can be conjured in your head when you read that stuff. Like I don't, I almost don't think I would want to see that. Well, yeah. Like when they're talking about the, the, the waves at, at, at uh, Guilford removing the buildings, moving up and down against the waves at Guilford. I was like, I wish I knew what Guilford looks like. Cause of course we, it's not like I could just go to Google image search or street view or something and see, what this beachside town in England looks like. Right. right? Um, I, I feel like they did. I feel like the production design team did a really good job of capturing the raw essence of what these things look like. Like, like the Zaphod Beeble rocks head has some pretty garbage CG on Sam Rockwell's second head. Oh, he's, so I was going to ask who, who some of the casting, Oh God, so Freeman is in it. Martin Freeman is Arthur Dent. Okay. He's very good. Okay. Like, like, like they, like, if that movie was released in a vacuum without the other 12 different media that this, this product had come out in, it would have been a delight and people would have been really excited about okay. it. Like they launched something into this, um, this huge fandom and you know, it, it, like it was, it's fine. I don't, I'm glad it exists. How's sure. that? Yeah, it, sure. I don't, it didn't take anything away from hitchhikers and in, in a, in a franchise that is so relentlessly like cross media, I, I don't think it hurt. I don't, I, it, yeah, it's fine. I don't watch it. I, I only watched it once or twice. I should go back. I I'm, I'm kind of curious how they handed the whale and the petunia <laughs> sure. when I think about it. Cause like, that's such a profoundly weird and disturbing, like, like the whole men- internal monologue of yes. the whale. Yes. When I was 12 years old was 
fucking hilarious. Sure. Right. But uh, now but, but, it's ha- like, oh, this is a really a horrible existence for this whale. Yes. This is not okay, man. Yeah, but also how you would uh, communicate all of that on film. I have no idea. Yeah. Right. Like, do you just have like, is it just a like third person shot of the whale falling toward the ground? That's, it was like an internal monologue running. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that would work. Two stars said Roger Ebert for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, unless he thought he thought video games weren't art. So he said, he said, he said, he said it's wit may confuse novices. Well, which, oh, it's too, too smart to be fair. I suppose I could see. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I, I mean, and that's the thing is like, if you think about a lot of the language that makes this book land, it's not in dialogue necessarily. Right. Yes. It's in, it's in the descriptions of the world, which yep. are harder to convey. I do remember really loving the, the guide. Like they do a whole different treatment for the guide and they're all animated and really cool for the guide entries. <laughs> Um, the TV show, the BBC oh, TV yes. show from the eighties is, do you remember, do you remember the, like the aesthetic that we had when we worked in the whiskey basement and we would just like grab some shit from around the thing and make, make some weird prop or whatever for yeah, a sure. happy hour show or something. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like the whole thing was done on that <laughs> kind of budget. <laughs> okay. That's fair. Yeah. Like they had, they had, uh, like blank wall sound stages and, like it's real low budge. The audio's bad. The costumes are often made of like tin foil. It looks like it looks like Doctor Who. It looks like if they got what if they had to make eight episodes or something on the budget they used for like the first act of a Doctor Who episode. I was, was going to ask you like I, if I I have like basically no experience with like Doctor Who or Red Dwarf or any of that genre of like kind of cheeky British sci-fi. But like there's yeah. like this book is definitely part of that tradition, right? I, I, so I'm not a Doctor Who guy. I never, okay. I bounced off because I, I, like it was on uh, PBS, which when they got when the weather was a real specific way when I was a kid. So, um, I, I never, I don't really have any kind of connection to Doctor Who. I've never seen Red Dwarf. I, I don't, it feels very Python esque in yes. the kind of British absurdism. I also know that, I do know that science fiction was maybe generally as a genre was maybe generally more popular in the UK at that time period than it was here. And and specifically, like the more the not that this is hard science fiction, but like harder science fiction, less space opera. So like stuff like star, like character driven stuff like Star Trek or like like things about exploration and th- and stuff like that. Not zooming around and rescuing space princesses like right. Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Not not a lot of big character driven melodrama type stuff. Um, yeah. There's a, I guess there's a new TV show that Hulu was doing. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. As of looks like they some finding some new stories from about a year ago that says they are working on a new one. Interesting. Uh, Carlton Cuse of Lost Fame appears to be involved in it. I, mean, I didn't like Lost. <laughs> well, got bad news. It's going to be garbage. <laughs> it's going to be bad. Uh, I don't know that it doesn't look like there's a lot more information about it yet, but it looks like that is probably still in the works. Hmm. Uh, so maybe stay tuned for that, or maybe don't. I don't know. Like I said, I might just. You know, read the book and be good with this. I if you're gonna like if you're gonna engage in two forms of media around hitchhikers, I would read the book, the first book and the second book, and then I would go back and listen to the first radio drama. Okay, uh, I think it's on Audible is where I found it last, and you can use your Audible credit and get the whole thing at one swoop. So it's like it's a it's long. I might have to. Uh, I might have to work that Infocom game in there somewhere. I, dude, I, I, I would totally play the Infocom game sometime. Is that a is that a text parser based game? 
It is a text. It is an Infocom text adventure God, really? in the vein of Zork. Okay, then I there is almost definitely want to check that out. So we let's let's stream it sometime. Um, okay. On the BBC site, you can play it in a window, and I think it's also on archive.org. Uh, when I looked for it last, uh, I played Starship Titanic years later, which is uh, Douglas Adams written. Oh, like like two D three three. I, it's like post mist and seventh guest, but like still think I think 3D rendered environments in a lot of cases with like some video characters overlaid on top of them. Uh, and it's very funny and very weird. It's about a starship, obviously, that can't crash, that bad things happen to. Of course. I'd expect um, no less. Oh, yeah. wow. This really is just a text adventure, isn't it? Oh, it is a text as text adventure. Yes. Wow. Okay. I, I, I assumed there were at least some rudimentary graphics involved, but this is full on Zork era, huh? Well, so I think the BBC one adds some, the BBC version adds some text, uh, some yeah, graphics to this, it. Like this, they like, draw some stuff. Anniversary edition's got like a, a frame around it or something, but yeah, it's pretty rudimentary. It looks like. So, uh, so, so what did you think about Slarty Bartfast? <laughs> is that a reference to something? I was trying to unpack that. Well, I, I think Slarty Bartfast has been like I, I there I, was always a guy on RC named Slarty Bartfast. Oh, of course, of course. I, I I certainly laughed when that name was introduced, but I wasn't sure if there, if there was uh, there, some, he, some, he some liked, connection I was missing there. I assume that's a made up name. I know Douglas Adams liked to steal names from his his family and friends. Okay. Uh the Eng, the uh, the Earthling who wrote the second worst poetry in the universe is a feminized version of one of his ex-roommates. Okay. Huh. <laughs> um, he also used a realtor's name in one of the later books to the point that like the realtor would get angry calls from people saying, hey, why'd you rip off Douglas Adams? That's shitty. Wow. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good. I love one one last thing to hit on. I love the description of infinity uh, when, when they go into the planet in Magrathia. The, that it wasn't infinity and you know they go into the hyperspace chamber where they make planets yes. he says it wasn't infinity in fact infinity itself looks flat and uninteresting yes looking up in the night sky is looking into infinity distance is incomprehensible and therefore meaningless yeah the chamber into which the air car emerged was anything but infinite it was just very 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 big so big that it gave the impression of infinity Far better than infinity. Yeah, so I, I thought that was a really delightful paradox of like the yeah. only the only way to depict depict infinity is to make it finite. Yeah, it's really it's really yeah, good. So it's a very clever um, book. A very very clever book. Yeah, I I uh, I remain a fan. Yeah, I'm glad I know now. Yeah, now you understand. Are you gonna keep reading, Brad? Or filled, you gonna filled in a bunch out of, here. Filled in a bunch of blanks for me. I. I might Don't you want to know what happens? I, think, yes, to I, was, I was going to say, say like, I'm especially, <laughs> especially considering it just kind of leaves a bunch of stuff hanging and yeah, just the rest sort of, of them there and just sort of ends. Yeah. Like I literally just need to turn two extra pages and I'll be into the next one. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Exactly. I think I might, I might keep going for a while. Cool. Um, well, I guess we've reached the point in the show where we need to thank uh, our patrons who made this possible. Uh, everybody right. who signed up uh, to get us over that thousand patron hump. We're now at 1,122 patrons as of this moment when we're recording on Saturday morning. Uh, so thank you all for supporting the show. We, yes. we really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Um, and especially thanks to our executive producer level patrons, Jacob Chapel, Andrew Cotton, and David Allen. Uh, we, we really appreciate all of you. And, um, if you want to find out how you can back the podcast, back the Patreon, support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash tech If you can't, 
that's fine. Yeah. We we totally appreciate just like posting on Twitter that you like the show yeah. and tell tell us why you like the show. We love that. Yeah, leave, leave an iTunes review, any of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like and subscribe if we were a YouTube channel. We're not. So you don't have to do that. Uh, but but definitely um, if you do back the Patreon, you get access to the Discord, which is uh, just a, a wonderful respite on an Internet filled with bad things on the day to day. Yeah. Where you can come and like dip into other people's weird hobbies and maybe find a new weird hobby of your own and and talk about books and talk about stuff you're enjoying and like the yeah, so Hades can, conversations happening in the Hades appreciation slash gaming channel right yes. now are very good. That's very informative. Now I can, now I can finally enter the aptly named reading room that you created now that I finished yeah. this book and I don't have to worry about seeing people talk about it because I've finished it now. Yeah. Spoilers is no, no fear not for spoilers. Um, but yeah, you can go to, again, that's patreon.com slash tech pod. And, uh, we'd appreciate anything you can do to help us out. Uh, yep. let other people know about the show. Yes. Cause the listeners, it turns out, are how people find new podcasts. You tell your friends, hey, this, there's this dope podcast. Word of mouth. Yeah, word of mouth. It still, works. Still effective. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what people think about this episode. Yeah. Like a, us covering a book in some fashion. A 40-year-old book. We, yeah, we had a couple other ideas in this vein if people like this, but if they hate it, then please let us know so we don't yeah. waste your time on that. Uh, uh, and you can send emails if you have... Uh, specifically, I'd like to hear things that you think Hitchhiker is influenced yeah. Uh, to techpod at content.town. That's the email address for emails, which we'll do in like three more weeks. Yep. So, um, yeah. Thank you all for listening. I guess we'll see you all next week. Brad, you got any closing thoughts on this one? Uh, so long and thanks for all the fish. 